ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Tonight, the Prime Minister seeks a new direction on Indigenous affairs after The Voice referendum. He's announced a new $700 million program to create Indigenous jobs in remote parts of Australia. Also, journalist Lisa Wilkinson hits out at Channel 10 for not backing her up after that controversial Logie speech. And will new laws be enough to stop people maliciously posting personal details online? The Jewish community is very scared, and some of them talking to each other, but not all of them, in a WhatsApp group. Now they're being identified publicly and targeted for having been in that group. Thanks for your company. 16 years to the day since the nation said sorry to Indigenous Australia for the stolen generation. Rates of disadvantage amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities remain entrenched. Just four of the 19 socio-economic indicators in last year's Closing the Gap report were considered to be on track. The number of Indigenous children thriving in early years is shrinking. The number of Indigenous adults in prison is increasing. But there are some green shoots and the government has today committed another $700 million to create thousands of jobs in remote areas of Australia. Indigenous correspondent Carly Williams is in our Parliament House studio. Carly, just remind us, where are we failing and where are we tracking okay? So today's report was not a targets assessment. It's more of a progress report or a progress update. And it's a chance for the government, I guess, to talk about what they've done so far. Uh, today's implementation report goes on last year's Productivity Commission report on targets. And that's the one you remember uh, where we were only um, doing well or on track for four out of 19 closing the gap targets. Uh, and that report in June last year, it also showed outcomes had worsened for four critical targets, and that was suicide, adult imprisonment, child development and out-of-home care. And the PM did speak about these areas of concern in the House of Representatives today. Now, the government said it was on track regarding uh, the number of young people in detention and uh, in, there's been an increase in preschool enrolments as well and we're doing OK with employment. And the government's also announced $700 million for this employment program. Tell us how that will work. Yeah, this is the CDP or the um, Community Development Program. It's an employment initiative for remote Aboriginal communities. Uh, they've announced an overhaul of this CDP today. Now, Labor has said they heard from communities that under the coalition, the CDP was broken. There was no incentive to work and people kept getting slugged with these breaches. Uh, but today they've announced 3,000 jobs in remote communities over three years. Uh, with what the PM has described uh, comes with proper wages and this investment is worth $700 million. Right. And after the loss of the voice referendum last year, did we get a sense today of what direction the Prime Minister is taking on reconciliation, including things like truth-telling, Macarata and the like? 
Well, Labor is walking a tightrope here. Uh, it must be on the PM's mind that, yes, 60% of Australia voted no to an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the voice referendum last year. Uh, so many are wondering, will Labor shy away from its promises on Aboriginal affairs, that path to treaty process and the truth-telling process? Uh, and, uh, you know, the, he has said this is what he truly believes. He wanted to implement the uh, Uluru statement in full, which was voice, treaty, truth. But he's got Peter Dutton criticising him already for the voice referendum and the amount of money that costs. Uh, And the opposition leader said today he wants uh, audits into Indigenous services after the Productivity Commission report uh, last week had some scathing findings and frustrations there between Indigenous-run organisations and then funding going to uh, NGOs, those national non-government organisations. It's, it's, it's a tough one for the PM. I know that Linda Burney today stood up and she did talk about treaty, uh, although she said state and territories are looking at their own treaty processes. But we know the opposition in those Labor government states have retracted their support uh, for treaty after last year's failed referendum. So we will have to see uh, what happens at those elections this year. That's our reporter Carly Williams at Parliament House. Well, one of the areas where rates of disadvantage are getting worse for Indigenous Australians is the number of children thriving in their early years. That's despite an improvement in high-quality, culturally appropriate early childhood education. Elizabeth Crampsey has been taking a look at what's going wrong and how we can do better. It's story time at the Communified Childcare Centre in Brisbane's Paddington. Its CEO, Karen Dare, believes all children should have access to tailored care in their early years. And when they don't, the outcomes are pretty startling. In, in cognitive development, we see behavioural issues where kids aren't learning to regulate, um, which they do majority within their families, you know, the time that they're with their families. I think, you know, we're seeing poor language, limited capacity to interact with other kids and other adults. Those first three years are so important to develop who you are, your personality. If you're neglected um, and you don't receive the, um, the right nutrition and the right interaction with adults and other children, then you'll be behind the eight ball probably for the rest of your life. In the latest Closing the Gap report, the target of 55% of First Nations children assessed as developmentally on track has worsened. It looks at physical health and wellbeing, social competence, emotional maturity, as well as language and cognitive skills. Karen Dare isn't surprised. We see a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who really don't want to engage with mainstream systems because they've had a really rough time in their own early years and where we this is where we see sort of intergenerational trauma and disadvantage so you know it is we just can't engage um, in the same way that we have been and I think we really need to look at new ways Um, and it's really got to come from the voice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people what is it that they see that they need. But she might have at least part of the solution She's on a team working to provide a shared care approach to early childhood education for vulnerable families. We provide uh, the level of care during the week that parents need to 
give them the time and space to deal with whatever issues that they're facing. It doesn't just focus on the kids. The side-by-side -side approach means parents are invited to learn alongside the educators, while children are given every opportunity to succeed. We are hoping to um, be able to provide a, a, you know, a full suite of therapeutic services, healthcare services, dental services, great nutrition, wonderful early years program. We want these kids to hit school like ahead of the game, you know, ahead of their peers. Literacy is one part of how children's development is assessed. In 2018, one in four Indigenous students in years five, seven and nine were below the national reading standards. Edith Wright is a Bardi woman and a director of Mugabala Books, an Indigenous children's book publisher in the Kimberley. She's had a long history teaching children and says getting books into the hands of Indigenous kids that say something about their own culture makes a difference. We provide cultural context to our books that Aboriginal kids or First Nations kids can connect with. You know, you, you pick up a Mugabala book and if you're an Aboriginal child from the Kimberley, you can connect with those stories straight away. And... The important thing is that there's value. You know, hold on, there's a book in my school that actually reflects my culture and you feel valued. Alongside books that tell their story, Edith Wright says teachers need to understand that for many students, English is a second language. And a good teacher will realise, hold on, these kids are ESL, therefore I'll, I'll have to structure the literacy learning to cater for the needs of an ESL. A good teacher will recognise that there's a lot of cultural challenges here at play. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese also announced the introduction of a National Commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people. The National Commissioner will be dedicated to protecting and promoting the rights, interests and wellbeing of First Nations children and young people, as well as calling on their strengths, sense of hope, and ideas for change. The Commissioner will address the unacceptable rates of out-of-home care. What it all comes down to is strengthening families and keeping children safe. An interim Commissioner will be appointed later this year. That report from Elizabeth Cramsey and Angus Randall. Well, most of us are pretty protective of our personal information these days, but imagine having all of that personal information vindictively splashed across the internet with the intent to cause harm. It happened just recently after the personal details of hundreds of Jewish Australians were published online. It's called doxing, and there's now bipartisan support in Canberra to make it illegal. The makeup of those laws is still unclear, but law experts believe they could have consequences for media organisations. Rachel Hayter reports. Melbourne-based Jewish artist Anita Lester is scared after her personal details were published online. They implicated my family, um, my brother and my mother especially, who runs an art school. Also, I, I, I had received a death threat that was quite serious where they apparently had my address. She's one of hundreds of Jewish writers, artists and academics who were targeted last week, prompting the Federal Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus to move quickly to make doxing illegal. The recent targeting of members of the Australian Jewish community through those practices like doxing was sh shocking, 
but sadly this is far from being an isolated incident. Doxing is short for dropping documents. It involves the publishing of a person's private and personal details online, usually with the intent of causing harm like harassment. The Coalition wants laws against doxing too. Shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham says they'll work with the government to make it happen. What we have seen in relation to the targeting of Jewish Australians as part of an overall rise in anti-Semitism has been horrific uh, and action to ensure that people are not targeted due to their faith is absolutely critical. Leading the push for anti-doxing laws is the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. Their president is Daniel Aguillon KC. The Jewish community is very scared. You had a group of people who came together. In one situation, they were lawyers. In another situation, they were people who had an interest in the arts and entertainment profession. And as a result of that coming together and, and some of them talking to each other, but not all of them, in a WhatsApp group, now they're being identified publicly and targeted for having been in that group. And he says it's having tangible consequences on their everyday lives. We're aware of business contracts not being renewed. We're aware of people having social relationships being destroyed, being made unwelcome in various places that they otherwise thought safe. And the only common denominator is really that they were Jews. It's not only Jewish people who say they're being doxxed for their beliefs. Theo, who lives in Botany in Sydney's eastern suburbs, has spoken in support of Palestinians. Since late October, I've had a Palestinian flag flying and on the 5th of January, I received a bomb placed on my car parked in my yard. Theo says it happened after his private information was published online. On Boxing Day, I was doxxed. I had my uh, address, name and mobile phone number leaked on a private Facebook group. Following that, some people who I believe got my details from that page got in touch with me. I believe, as do some others, that the person who placed the bomb did so as a result of my details being distributed on this this website. PM has contacted New South Wales Police for comment. Dr Catherine Kemp is a privacy expert and an associate professor with the University of New South Wales Law and Justice. She explains any anti-doxing laws will most likely involve changing the Privacy Act. The government has said that it agrees in principle that there should be a statutory tort for serious invasion of privacy. And it said that in response to the Privacy Act review that's been conducted over the last couple of years. And this would create a different kind of law from the existing Privacy Act obligations, which only apply to businesses earning over $3 million a year and federal government agencies. And this would instead dead extend to individuals, for example, who are invading other people's privacy. During the Privacy Act review, there was some opposition from health organisations, but mainly from the media. Serious invasions of privacy could extend to somebody, say, filming you over your back fence in your backyard or publishing private emails or letters or disclosing sensitive facts about your private life where you've got that reasonable expectation of privacy. News companies and journalists have been sued overseas for serious invasions of privacy. 
Rachel Hayter, our reporter there. Well, you are listening to PM. I'm David Lipson. Don't forget you can hear all of our programs live or later via the ABC Listen app. Coming up on the program, one of the Reserve Bank's top experts has a wake-up call. The final stretch of the battle against inflation could be a long and difficult one. Well, there's growing international unease as Israel prepares a ground incursion into Rafah, the border city in Gaza that now hosts more than half of the Strip's population. Nearly 70 people have already died in air and sea strikes in Rafah this week. International leaders are calling on Israel to tread carefully. Here's Alexandra Humphreys. At the Gaza border, Israeli helicopters and fighter jets engage in combat. Inside the Strip, Streets in the city of Rafah have been turned to rubble. Children hold bullets up for the cameras. Those taking shelter in the city are terrified. We were asleep at home when it happened and the clashes suddenly took place. We were bewildered and didn't know what was going on. Gunshots burst out from street to street and we also heard fighter jets and helicopters roaring. Then this place was hit by missiles. We were in total shock and didn't know where to hide. Only when we ran outside did we find out how devastating it was. It was a miracle for us to survive this. Local health authorities say at least 67 Palestinians have been killed in the attacks in Rafah. Strikes Israel said were to provide cover as it rescued two hostages. As Israel prepares for a possible ground offensive into Rafah, US President Joe Biden is calling for protection of the vast population of displaced civilians sheltering in the border town. He says every innocent life lost in this war is a tragedy. The, the major military operation in Rafah should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Many people there have been displaced, displaced multiple times, fleeing the violence to the north, and now they're packed into Rafah, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. The US president has been in talks with Jordan's King Abdullah in Washington. On the agenda is a six-week ceasefire deal that would see all remaining hostages held by Hamas released. And I'm working on this day and night with the king and others in the region to find the means to bring all these hostages home, to ease the humanitarian crisis and to end the terror threat, and to bring peace to Gaza and Israel, enduring peace with a two-state solution for two peoples. Standing alongside President Biden, King Abdullah called for a lasting peace. Unfortunately, one of the most devastating wars in recent history continues to unfold in Gaza as we speak. Nearly 100,000 people have been killed, injured, or are missing. The majority are women and children. We cannot afford an Israeli attack on Rafah. It is certain to produce another humanitarian catastrophe. The situation is already unbearable for over a million people who have been pushed into Rafah since the war started. We cannot stand by and let this continue. We need a lasting ceasefire now. This war must end. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says work is being done on a plan to ensure civilians aren't in harm's way. Those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafah are basically saying lose the war. 
keep Hamas there. As international unease grows, a Dutch court has moved to block the export of fighter jet parts to Israel. International Criminal Court prosecutor Karim Khan has also weighed in from The Hague, stressing all sides must obey international law. I have real concern over the reports coming out of Rafa, uh, the possibility of uh, further ground incursions by Israeli troops, the reported bombardments and um, the um, reality that the laws of war must be respected. They can't be rendered hollow. They can't be interpreted so as to void them of meaning or to um, dilute or eviscerate any protected purpose that the Geneva Conventions and the law provides the most vulnerable children, uh, women, uh, people that are sick. Uh, or civilians. That's International Criminal Court Prosecutor Karim Khan ending that report by Alexandra Humphreys. Network 10 journalist Lisa Wilkinson has told the federal court her employer was intentionally cruel when it told her it didn't have any obligation to cover her legal costs in the defamation case brought against them by Bruce Lehrman. Mr Lehrman sued both Miss Wilkinson and Network 10 after the Project TV program broadcast an interview with his former colleague, Brittany Higgins, alleging she'd been raped in Parliament House in 2019. Mr Lehrman vehemently denies the allegation. Lisa Wilkinson has launched a counterclaim against Network 10, seeking for it to pay her legal costs. Samantha Donovan is following the case. Sam, this defamation case seems to be getting even more complex. Why is Lisa Wilkinson making this claim? Well, David, as you pointed out, Bruce Lehrman sued both Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson over that 2021 interview on the project with Brittany Higgins. And those two parties defended that defamation case during a trial that ran for several weeks late last year. Normally, a company like 10 and its employee would have the, the same legal team and all the expense of that would be covered by the company. But under cross-examination in court today, Lisa Wilkinson has given evidence she was advised and felt it was necessary to retain her own lawyers. And she's given a few reasons why today. One was that 10's lawyers didn't notify her she was being sued for defamation. She gave evidence she learnt of it from a news report and it, in fact, took several hours for 10 to get back to her to confirm that was correct. She also felt that the barrister briefed by 10, Dr Matt Collins, wasn't a good choice for her because he'd been on TV and criticised her for her 2022 speech at the Logies when the project won an award for its interview with Brittany Higgins. Yeah, we remember that speech. It was very controversial, wasn't it? Yes, and it took up quite a bit of time in court today. Uh, it was very controversial because it was inferred by many that Lisa Wilkinson believed Brittany Higgins' allegations. And the speech came just before Bruce Lehrman's criminal trial. That, of course, was eventually abandoned, but it led to the, the trial initially being postponed for several months because of fears uh, the Logie speech might influence a jury. Now, Lisa Wilkinson's told the court today that her reputation was trashed in the media after that speech and the postponing of the trial, and she was particularly angry that Network 10 and its lawyers didn't disclose that they had approved the speech and they also didn't uh, correct reporting that alleged Ms Wilkinson had been warned by the prosecutor in the criminal case not to give the speech at the Logies. Network 10 lawyer Tasha Smithies has told the court today 
there was no such warning. She confirmed that was the case, no warning from the prosecutor not to give the speech. But she denied, this is the lawyer, that she and Network 10 didn't want that coming out, nor the fact that they'd cleared Lisa Wilkinson's speech because it would have been embarrassing for them. So all those factors, David, led Lisa Wilkinson to retain her own legal team, and she's now seeking a ruling from the court that 10 pay her legal costs. But 10 says it was unreasonable that she had her own lawyers. And Sam, a YouTuber is in trouble with the court over the Learman defamation case. What's that about? Yes, uh, the Lemon defamation trial and the associated matters like today's hearing are broadcast on the federal court's YouTube channel. And every day, anyone watching the proceedings is warned by the judge that any recording of the hearing and any rebroadcasting may be a contempt of court. A man by the name of Glenn Logan runs a YouTube channel called Feminism Debunked, uh, and he's now facing a charge of contempt of court for recording and rebroadcasting the hearings. Uh, he was rebuked by the judge today for not appearing in court at the appointed time. Uh, his lawyers submitted doctors had confirmed he was a man of low intelligence who hadn't been aware he wasn't allowed to broadcast the proceedings and had taken the recordings down from his site as soon he's, as he was notified and, and that he was also remorseful. But Justice Michael Lee then played in court a recording of Glenn Logan urging his followers to watch the court proceedings on other channels because YouTube, he said, is run by, quote, extreme feminists who'd taken the material down. So he's facing a likely charge of contempt of court. Lisa Wilkinson's cost hearing uh, continues tomorrow, David. But something else to note, Justice Lee indicated today he's aiming to deliver his judgment in the Lehrman defamation case in March. Samantha Donovan there. Well, we're being told that the last leg in the marathon to contain the cost of living crisis will be the toughest. And making it to the finish line could prove very costly for the broader economy. Inflation peaked towards the end of 2022 at close to 8%, and it's since fallen considerably to just above 4%. But the Reserve Bank gave a sobering reminder today that unless the cost of services comes down, think labour costs, insurance, rents and electricity, millions of households will remain under financial pressure. But there is a silver lining, as David Taylor explains. Much ground has been made in the cost of living battle over the past 12 months, but there's evidence some ground has now been lost. What we're seeing is we're seeing prices starting to increase a little bit in January. The National Australia Bank monitors the prices hundreds of businesses charge month to month. Despite some signs late last year firms were willing to lower prices, the NAB's chief economist, Alan Oster, says many have reverted back to pushing the envelope on price rises. Well, it's, it's huge in the sense that what's happened was you had bad sales in December month and people or business tried to essentially... Cut their, yeah, their, their, their way out of it, yeah. Yeah, and, and then they've sort of said, well, hang on, this can't go on forever, and they've had a go. And I think basically what people were trying to do was, or businesses were trying to do, was they were trying to encourage sales in November, December, and maybe they've just uh, overdone it a little bit. 
Businesses refusing to lower prices will delay any resolution to the cost of living crisis. It's worrying the Reserve Bank, which is using higher interest rates to pull inflation back down to between 2 and 3%. Speaking today at a gathering in Sydney, the RBA's Head of Economic Analysis, Marion Kohler, said, quote, Looking ahead, we expect goods inflation for many categories to be low for a time. But services price inflation remains high and broadly based. And she adds, firms in our liaison program continue to say they face pressure from higher labour and non-labour costs, like professional services, logistics and insurance. In other words, many businesses providing services continue to face elevated costs, including higher wages, and they're passing those costs on to their customers. RBC Capital Markets Chief Economist Su Linong says the easy gains on inflation have been made, but now the hard work begins on stickier prices. We know services have a large component um, that is more that is driven more by labour costs and labour markets have been reasonably strong, wages have grown and so that higher labour cost component um, has, has been part of that sort of stickier service sector inflation and so that's what we need to see um, move lower to get overall inflation down. That is a little bit harder, it takes time, um, it will demand um, a further softening in the labour market and wages to, to ease accordingly. Su Linong says, however painful, and as the Reserve Bank says, unemployment may need to rise to bring services inflation down. That's because unemployed people cut their spending dramatically, reducing demand in the economy and forcing businesses to discount their products and services again. Businesses should um, not be able to pass on as much of those high input costs um, as we have seen, you know, in the past. But for those looking for any sign interest rates will come down soon, the Reserve Bank reiterated today it expects inflation to hit its target band of between 2 and 3% by next year. It's also stated that it won't need to wait for inflation to actually return to that band before easing monetary policy. David Taylor there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us here on PM. I'm David Lipson. We will be back at the same time tomorrow. Don't forget you can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app and also all of our interviews and reports are on the PM webpage. Until tomorrow, have a good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Since footage emerged of Barnaby Joyce lying flat on his back, swearing into his phone on a Canberra street, there's been fierce debate over whether it matters or not that an elected politician could be caught out in such a manner. Today, Radio National Breakfast and the Party Room podcast host Patricia Carvelis unpacks the culture of booze at Parliament House. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.